welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris. And I'm Kyle. And this week we're diving back into probably our second most popular category after Best Actress, uh, Best Director. And this week we're looking at the probably, I would say, one of the strongest lineups we've ever had on this program in any category, Best Director 1976. And I was really glad when you chose this one um, because this lineup, I mean, I knew going in it was going to be amazing. So um, why did you decide on this one? Yeah, those are strong words. Strong words. It's the best, best lineup we've ever had. It, it's possible. It really is. Like, I, to be honest, I wasn't sure what to do. We've, we've, done, a, we've done quite a lot of oldish years. Um, so I was kind of thinking about doing a modern one, but then... I didn't want to rewatch the films. <laughs> so I kind of came across this. I think mainly because I hadn't seen Face to Face before we did this episode. Um, and basically, I w- a couple of years ago, I was left with 50 Best Actress nominees left to see, which was kind of a big milestone. And I did this big list and I made up my mind that I was going to leave Liv Ullman till last. Um because I assumed it was going to be one of the best ones. Um, yeah. Because she's often so brilliant. Mm-hmm. The longer things have gone on, the less sort of inclined I am to be so precious about it. Like, I I think I have 25 left at the minute. But I just mm-hmm. thought, you know, why leave the best ones to last? I might not be here in a year or something. You know, you <laughs> never know what's going to happen around the corner, do you, given all that's happened recently so to go to your grave having seen jan crane in pinky or something and not live (laughs) Ullman in face to face that the idea of that's just too much to bear um yeah you would you wouldn't want that on your tombstone yeah and also i've never seen all the president's men which so that's an equally good reason um to do this category very solid yeah yeah, the lineup uh, for this category, we have Alan J. Pacula for All the President's Men, Ingmar Bergman, Face to Face, Sidney Lumet for Network, Lena Wertmüller for Seven Beauties, and the winner, John G. Avildsen for The Best Picture, Rocky. And yeah, just, just luminaries of 70s filmmaking staring us in the face. Yeah, are we starting with Alan J.? Yeah, we'll start with him. What did you feel about... I'm guessing you'd seen this before, right? I had, yeah, a couple of times. Not for a great while, but I definitely watched it in school. And and again, you know, at some point between then and now. Um, and I love the... I mean, you're going to hear me say this a lot today. I love this film. Um, I think that it's one of the best political thrillers out there um it's so well paced and there's so much suspense when the only thing that happens are people have conversations and talk on the phone and it's really really suspenseful and well put together so yeah it's it's a i i think it's an amazing movie it's sort of i do wonder if um the less you know about watergate the the better it's going to be um sort of maybe the first time you watch it um, not knowing as much it, it probably packs more of a punch um, but I really really enjoyed this one I 
I think mainly because it's quite organic as a procedural. It's not, you know, it's not people grandstanding all the time. It's it's more about teamwork and it's quite realistic in the way that it's made and the way that the actors are executing things and peculiar as well. Um, but I think even at one point, Robert Redford screws his line up um, when he gets mm-hmm. he confuses English and Spanish uh, when he's talking to someone yeah. on the phone. And I just thought that's too well done to be part of the script. It must have been a mistake mm-hmm. that they've just left in. And I think having read further about things, they did leave other mistakes in that he made. Um, so I kind of, I kind of like that, and I think there's kind of shades of Altman with with the way that the dialogue sort of tends to overlap at times when you're not expecting it. And um, there was also this scene where they they kind of have a conversation. Hoffman has a conversation. Um, with this woman uh, informant and the planes are going over and you can kind of yep. like not hear them for, for like 10, 15 seconds. And I kind of think, was that sort of, yeah, like, did that just occur accidentally and he left it in? So I think all of these like little decisions help to make the film feel more realistic. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of, yeah, shades of Altman also in the way that in the newsroom you have, uh, Bernstein and Woodward kind of working in the foreground on the phone or talking to each other and in the background you have other conversations or the news on um, talking about you know Nixon or other current events so you have this kind of mix of various layers of sound which you also get in Altman right yeah the um, the extreme depth of focus and the having to pay attention to everything on the screen uh, in order to really get the feel for it. And yeah, the the improvised, the improvised kind of nature of the dialogue um, is fantastic and those little mistakes that they leave in. I did read that um, Hoffman and Redford uh, had each other's lines memorized so that when their characters were arguing, they could interrupt each other and get back to their lines in a realistic way so that their arguments would feel more real. So they weren't just waiting for each other to stop talking. They could just jump in whenever. Yeah, that's clever. That's committed. Like, I think as well, Robert Redford sort of was around in this project from the beginning, bought the rights to the book that was that it was based on. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he and Hoffman work really well together. And in general, the acting is so good. Um, Jane Alexander, like in two scenes, is just absolute dynamite. Like you can't imagine anyone selling that character anymore. Um, But there are a lot of little performances that sort of work together. And Jason Robards too, although I kind of feel like maybe other people deserved a nomination ahead of Jason Robards, like maybe Jack Warden. Um, I was I was going to say, yeah, Jack Warden seemed to me the more deserving of that nomination. Yeah, but is it the is it the thing where they're building up the, that the film's going to be made and Jason Robards is Ben Bradley, the editor? Like, is it is it a case where they'd already kind of earmarked Jason Robards for this nomination? Yeah, it's possible. Um, but like, you know, Jack Warden's character has much more to do in the film and i think 
they both have kind of similar uh, roles in that they're both kind of, you know, trying to push the story forward while at the same time, uh, you know, protect the integrity of the paper. Yeah. So I think between the two of them, I probably would have thought Jack Warden more than Jason Robards. Um, and also, I, I, I kind of felt Ben Bradley in the film was a little bit of a stereotypical character that we've seen in so many other procedurals. The kind, you know, whether it's a police chief mm. or a newspaper editor being, you know, crusty and yelling at the guys and saying, you know, you've you screwed up, you did this, but then begrudgingly saying, but you're good, so keep at it. Um, yeah, it's it's so, it's quite it's quite the typical curmudgeonly character that he plays. Um, yeah, yeah, I, that win is a real stretch. I have to say, I do like him in Julia the next year that he won for. Um, which is a small performance, but I think more effective within that film. Um, but yeah, I, this is a stretch, but lots of good little performances in this. For sure. And yeah, Jane Alexander for her, for those five minutes, uh, got an Oscar nomination. So, um, yeah, everybody makes their screen time count really well. Yeah. I hadn't seen, uh, we've gone th- over that I haven't seen the film before. I did want to be a journalist. I did like a course at university and um, I was expecting it to be this. I was expecting it to be mm. to be investigative um, and creative. And when I sort of got on the course, it turned out to be all about sort of hooks and headlines and word limits. Um, yeah. it, it was all kind of technical, which obviously, you know, shorthand which which you would have to learn at the time but it, there wasn't really anything romantic about it but this sort of this sort of is the inspiration for journalists really and it's sort of the inspiration for other films about journalism like Spotlight and The Post which mm-hmm. is about Ben Bradley um and Catherine Graham who I think did want to be in this film uh, she she sort of said don't put my character in the film um Although I think she eventually liked the film, but she she just didn't want herself portrayed on screen. Um, mm-hmm. But it, this is def, definitely the model for for this journalist yeah. drama. For sure. And yeah, I think Ben Bradley said that um, he figured they were going to do the film with or without his help. So he may as well help and make sure that it was uh, accurate and, and portrayed everything, um, you know, as well as possible. I think he said the only thing he was concerned about was that it portrayed uh, journalists as responsible um, professionals. And I think it definitely does that. Definitely. And it's interesting um, that you say about your journalism course, because I actually have a almost identical experience with a journalism course at university. Um, and I had, I had seen this film before going in. So I had a really, really high expectations for it. Um, and got let down sadly <laughs> yeah that that's see we're learning about each other doing this podcast <laughs> um yeah, yeah but the funniest thing to me watching it now is the fact that you know in the 70s this was like a a paranoid thriller about you know the corruption in the government yeah and i'm just watching it thinking man there was a time when factual 
investigative journalism could actually affect political change. Like, we just we just went through an administration that had a Watergate scandal like every month, and it never made a dent. And these two guys brought down an entire presidency with just facts. And it just made me think, wow, I wish I lived in the 70s. Yeah, it, it does sort of highlight how much the ethics and the integrity has just been eroded completely. Um, mm -hmm. What about Pakula then? Is there much room for him to shine directorially in a film like this? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that he um, composes a lot of interesting shots. Like, he, he really makes the newsroom come alive as a kind of churning space of all these different things going on mm. and he he has great use of lighting like especially in the scenes where um where woodward goes to meet deep throat those are very creepy scenes um but not not because you're worried about anything that's going to happen but almost like you're worried about what he's going to find out you know, so he manages to create the suspense out of the information. Uh, and I think that's an incredibly, um, an incredibly deft touch. And he manages, yeah, like I said, to make two hours of people talking to each other a very suspenseful film. Yeah, I think, I think like visually the film is good. Um, it's not amazing, but I think the way that some of the techniques, I love the end with the typewriter um typing mm -hmm. out all the, the you know the news stories of what was going to follow you know this investigation and that's a really great technique and also the work with the actors um it can't have been easy to direct these actors like the performances gel very well um with each other not just Hoffman and Redford but everyone else when there's sort of 10 12 people in a room um it does feel real so i think he's he definitely manages the cast really, really well. Yeah. Anything to add? Um, nope. I think that's, uh, that's everything. So we can move on to the, the first of two non-English language films in the category this year. As, uh, as you pointed out on a, in a Twitter post earlier this week, first time that that has happened in the Oscars. Um, this is Ingmar Bergman's face to face, which is very difficult to to find, but I'm glad we I'm glad we finally tracked that down because this has been on my watch list for years as well. Yeah, there's there's sort of several different versions of this. I think there's um a 130 minute version, and then there's a the three hour version, which was the original four part mini series shown on Swedish television, um, in Sweden only, I think. Um, but we saw the mm -hmm the 115 minute version which i think is what the academy saw so this has been cut down an hour of the original footage has been cut out of this can you tell i think there does seem to be some spots where there are abrupt jumps yeah um and i i definitely think that um prior to the midpoint in particular there seem to be some stages missing from um from jenny's descent i suppose um like w when i was watching it i th i definitely felt that when she um when she attempted suicide 
I thought, wow, she got there real fast. Hmm. Like, she saw the vision a couple of times, and she had that attack in her home, and then it's just like, bam, sleeping pills. And I thought, well, I mean, I get that this is the midpoint. It makes sense as the midpoint, but what is what haven't we seen prior to this that may give this a little more context? I mean, did, did you feel that, or am I... Am I off base? I think I think it relies on you being assuming a lot to believe that mm. she would suddenly uh, she would suddenly do that, but then the way that the second half works is that it informs about her character before we've joined that character in her story. Yeah. Uh, all about the childhood. And once you get to that bit you know, those that information sort of suggests that she already had the ability to do this and the capability to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it, and I do like that Jenny is not the person she initially seems. At least that's what I got from it, because she does seem very sexually open and independent in that way at the beginning, and she's prepared to mm-hmm. have lovers and. You know, she's married, but it feels like maybe she's in an open relationship or she just doesn't love her husband anymore, but she's willing to to go out and find someone else. But as it progresses, I really didn't feel that way at all. Like she gets involved with this guy called Tomas, who's bisexual or gay, um, which she doesn't have much chemistry with sexually. They don't really sleep together. and that, that turns out to be quite a touching and valuable relationship. So I really liked the relationship between uh, her and Erlen Josephson as Thomas. Um, but I'd, at the time, I feel like the traumatic event that happens, the attempted rape, was going to change her attitude towards sex. But I think rather than that, it exposes other feelings that have been rumbling all along. So in that mm-hmm. way, it was quite unexpected and quite clever on Bergman's part yeah for sure it definitely was shocking and I was expecting Mm. it to be uh, a hallucination or something but when it when it played out as a real thing it was uh yeah it was the last thing I expected to happen it was it was almost like being in a Michael Haneke film to be honest yeah (laughs) the way like the way that scene was shot which is it was wonderfully shot very simply with the two rooms, um, mm-hmm. either either half of the screen. Um, yeah, the whole the whole film is full of amazing shots like that. Bergman really knew how to make a lot happen with a static camera or a very small amount of camera movement. Yeah, and we don't see an awful lot. We don't need to see an awful lot. Um, but I think that's mm-hmm. definitely one of the harshest scenes I've seen from Bergman. Uh, Bergman movies. Mm-hmm. Have Have you seen? Uh, I'm thinking of the Virgin Spring. No, I've not seen that. Is that okay? Is well, that, that quite severe? Also, yeah, an- another film that um, involves rape, and it's very, very. But it it kind of is more disturbing because it's more graphic, but it maintains that kind of cold gaze on mm. it. Yeah. Um, so I would say, and it's from about 15 years prior to this. I think it's like 1961 or something like that, maybe 1960. Mm-hmm. And 
it's quite disturbing. Yeah, I would definitely. That's one of my favorite of his films. Um, back in his Max von Sydow days. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, like you could see it in face to face. The scene sort of done wrongly, like Lars von Trier, for instance. Mm. Oh God! May have written the character in in a much more obvious way, and um, you mm-hmm. know, sort of shot that scene in a much harsher way. Um, whereas I think Bergman's is a bit more considered, well, a lot more considered than that would be, and. Um, Ullman's portrayal of the character as well, I think, is is excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And I I love the the acting chemistry between Liv Ullman and Erlan Josephson um, in this, and also, I mean, I'm just going over Bergman films now. It's like uh, <laughs> scenes from a marriage that they did together. Yeah. Um, in which they're absolutely brilliant, and it's pretty much just the two of them alone for the entire five hour runtime of that and they're brilliant um and so yeah it's it's really like and of course bergman used them together quite a lot in the later uh, in the 60s and 70s and so he knew what he had and so i was glad to see them together again in this film and you're right their relationship is a is a very tender and um interesting one much more interesting than it would have been if they had just been, you know, lovers or an item. Well, you, when the scene happens where she goes to his house after they've been for dinner, mm. the first night they've met, and you're kind of not expecting this to be... I mean, apart from the fact it's Ellen Josephson, but in terms of the characters, you don't really sense that there's going to be a long relationship between them at the beginning because... No. It's quite a you know non-event really, um, as a date or whatever it was. Um, but it, yeah. it is actually quite emotional at the end, and I thought that the film definitely earned that. Where he went off to Jamaica, and um, she kind of wants to come with him, but I mean, he's he's you know he's sort of still heartbroken in his own relationship and looking for something new. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I also like the psychology of her being the psychiatrist and there's sort of this underlying statement that Bergman's making, I think, where it's like, look how easy somebody can unravel. Um, and this idea that, that somebody, you know, that works in the medical profession and treats mental health in a quite a matter-of-fact way, the way that she treated Maria... The sort of um, the mental patient, you know, sort of portrayed as mm-hmm. a bit of an nymphomaniac, to be honest. Um, but yeah, the, she treats her in a very matter of fact way, like she's a subject or like a curio rather than an actual person. And I think it's that sort of a powerful way of showing how fragile the human the human mind really is, um, by saying that she can sort of turn into that person. Um, and I can buy it because of the the way she's talked about her grandmother's influence over the family and, um, you know, going back there is going to stir up trauma and anxiety. And I do think that um, people are capable of going off the deep end for a lot less than we see here. Uh, definitely, yeah. And I think that 
um, even in this cut down version and even, you know, given what I was saying earlier, I think that the pacing of her unraveling is done quite well. Um, and I can only imagine it's even more, um, um, even more dramatic and even more interesting in the full version, which, you know, we'll have to seek out, uh, to make sure that the Academy didn't miss anything important. Yeah, 25%, 30% is a lot to cut out of a finished film. Um, there must be at least two or three scenes that didn't make it that that are saying a lot about that character and help us. But yeah, even the 130-minute version might be a lot more valuable. I think Liv Ullman is amazing in this, um, as she usually is. And... Um... She. It was a shame that this was only her second nomination and that the Academy, for technical reasons, did not nominate her for Scenes from a Marriage a couple of years prior to this. Um, despite, I think there was actually a, an open letter to the Academy signed by most of the prominent actresses of the day asking them to nominate her for Scenes from a Marriage um, because they felt it was such a strong performance, but of course it didn't happen. Well, we've, as we've learned, the Academy's a, a little bit stubborn, <laughs> to say the least. Yes. <laughs> yep, they they tend to be about all the wrong things. <laughs> all right. Um, and now we move to Sidney Lumet, um, who received several Oscar nominations, but unfortunately never won. And this one, perhaps his greatest achievement, Network. Uh, which is the last film in Academy history to get five Oscar nominations for acting. Um, do you think, well, before we get to the film, just briefly, do you think we'll ever see a film get five acting uh, nominations? I'm going to go on record as saying um, no film deserves five acting nominations. <laughs> um, if you know, If you give a film five acting nominations, you're kind of a a bit blinkered and you should look beyond those films. Um, I could maybe mm. stretch to a streetcar named desire deserve the four. Um, but I wouldn't have given this, I certainly wouldn't have given this, um, a best supporting actor nomination. Um, I'll say that. That's fair. Or I, I maybe wouldn't have given it that supporting actor nomination. Um, mm. I might've given it a different one. Um, well, I'm thinking about the films that have received five, um, and overall I would say most of them probably didn't deserve them, but um, I'm not sure which not sure which nomination I'd take off of From Here to Eternity, for example. Bonnie and Clyde, I can think of a couple that I'd take out of them. Mm. Um, Godfather 2... I'm not sure. Yeah, I probably didn't deserve three supporting actor nominations. Yeah. Um, Peyton, Peyton Place, I don't think deserved any. No. At all. Um, Tom Jones, maybe a couple. So not many. So we haven't said that many, many deserved it. But okay. I mean, this is this is a wonderful film, though. Um, I want to get that oh, out yes. there. Probably, yeah. pa- probably a bigger achievement for Chayefsky than for Lumet. Um, but Lumet's uh, direction of this is wonderful. But um, 
I think like it's just so ahead of its time. Like the fact that Chayevsky's anticipated that network television's going to evolve to the point of absurdity and become all-consuming. Um, the foresight of this script is is just brilliant. Like I think the way that it shows how the network exploits Howard, um, Howard's mental health to begin with, um, mm-hmm. and then sort of the eventual sort of hints at reality television, which is now where that kind of mentality is shown on screen um, and the influence that television would end up having on the audience, you know, this with everyone reacting to Howard and um, basically being brainwashed by him. Um, so in, in terms of showing the direction of the industry, it's very accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Um it's in in a lot of ways. It's kind of the culmination of Chayef, all of Chayefsky's um, philosophy uh, distilled into several brilliant monologues, and just yeah, pushing it. It seems to be absurdist, and it seems to be over the top. But watching it from our time, it feels yeah, like you said, very prescient and very. Um, uh, astoundingly accurate in its uh, predictions actually um and yeah it definitely is uh Chayefsky's masterpiece um it's so so brilliantly written so many of those monologues could have been just ridiculous but they all feel like something that these characters would say they I don't think there's one in there that uh feels hammy or overwritten or just wrong I wasn't sure about the Anna Karenina. I have to say, like, um, I there is like William Holden uh, Max's breakup scene with Beatrice Strait is like, yeah. I mean, he's going on about Anna Karenina and she's smiling. And I'm thinking, you know, I would just punch him in the face because yeah, he wasn't he wasn't <laughs> thinking about it emotionally. He was trying to put it in this box. Um, but I mean. It might seem a little bit too written at times, but everything that's said has a purpose. Um, so I can kind of let that go, really. What did you think of the um, relationship between Max and Diana? The personal one. Um, it, it. I mean, on the one hand, it makes no sense. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I have to admit that if I was in Max's shoes, confronted with a woman like Diana, I would be at least intrigued. Um, I I would wonder what it would be like to uh, have a personal relationship with her. And I would definitely wonder what she's like uh, in the sack, um, to use her <laughs> expression. Um, I mean, she says that she's gotten bad reviews and then we see her in bed with him and we kind of see why um (laughs) but i i don't think that i would break up my marriage to find out um so that part no that's a bit of a script contrivance uh, as far as i'm concerned yeah this i mean this there is some misogynism here um i think in, in the way that diane has written and She's cold-hearted. She doesn't have a soul. Um, she's barely a human being, which kind of is... I think Max says that line, which she's barely a human being, really. 
Um, so it does mm-hmm. sort of imply that she's this black widow type. And when the relationship goes wrong with her and Max, it's, it's her fault. Even though she's the one that's single and he left his wife, it's almost like she gets the blame. Um, so I didn't really like that. But the way that Faye yeah. Dunaway plays it is constantly making that character interesting. I do think if someone else would play that character, it might be a bit too one-dimensional. Um, but mm-hmm. she's just, she's absolutely terrific. And I, I'm not sure if I'd vote for Ullman over Dunaway. I think they're both amazing in different ways. Um, but I think definitely worthy of, of the Oscar. Yeah, I I think as brilliant as Liv Ullman was, I, my vote would have gone to Dunaway. Um because, yeah, you're right, she takes what could have been a very one-dimensional character, and who knows what she brought to it. Um, because you're right, it is, I mean, Petty Chayefsky, for all his brilliance, um, definitely wrote as a man, and he wrote his characters through that perspective. He didn't have a whole lot of, uh, um, I suppose, insight or empathy um, when he was writing women. Now, talking about, you know, we're talking about all of its acting nominations. Um, Beatrice Strait, famously, um, this is the shortest performance to win an Oscar. She's on screen for just over five minutes. Um, And Ned Beatty, also on screen for roughly five minutes, got a supporting actor nomination. Uh, Do you think either of those were uh, deserved? Um. Well, I've already said that it didn't deserve five, so I have to say one's not. But I think Ned Beatty obviously didn't deserve it. I think it's, I think anyone could have done it, to be honest. Um, mm. When you see the supporting actor lineup overall, well, there's nothing much to shout about in that lineup, really, for me. Um, but yeah, I, Beatrice Strait is good. I'm not sure she's good enough for a nomination because it is so small. But she certainly does the most she can. It's sort of like when we talked about Sylvia Miles. It's sort of like the most you mm. could could have done with that. Um, and I probably wouldn't have nominated it twice in lead actor. But I think I certainly think Straight was was good. Was really good. Yeah. Did you like her? See, I did. Yeah, and I agree. She she makes the most of her um, very short time on screen. Um, not sure I would have uh, given her the Oscar. Um, I like Ned Beatty's scene a lot, actually, yes. but primarily, primarily, um, of I like this. I like the, yeah, yeah, the amazing way it's lit and shot is, I mean, just fantastic. Um, but I'm actually surprised that if they were going to nominate a supporting actor for this film, that it wasn't Robert Duvall. See, I, I, I think Robert Duvall was a bit too. It, it's sort of the the the, nom, the nomination you'd expect. I didn't really like the performance that much from him, but I think it's the it's the showier role, like in terms of it, it's yeah. on screen. Like he must get at least twenty five minutes screen time, twenty twenty five minutes. Um, so you would expect it to go to him, especially he'd already got a nomination before. Um, right. So yeah, that is a bit odd. 
But going back to the Ned Beatty scene, I love that it's shot either side of the long dinner table, the boardroom table or whatever it is. Um, it's just fantastic. And like sort of Finch's weary eyed sort of disorientation during the scene. It's almost like it's a dream sequence. Um, even, th- even though it's not supposed to be, I don't think. Um, but it does feel like a dream sequence. It adds to that sort of hyper reality that the film's got going on. Mm-hmm. And it just the, it's one of several amazing scenes where the camera just makes such great use of uh, light sources. There's so many great shots in this film where the lamps are the star of the shot. Uh, <laughs> Slight rear window. <laughs> yeah, and this one is just like the, the those rows of. Um, you know, desk lamps leading down the table to Ned Beatty, kind of just drawing the attention of the viewer straight to him. It's it's an amazing composition. Yeah. I We also have to talk about the double lead actor nomination and mm. um, obviously Peter Finch dying, which was tragic. Um, but for William Holden, I... Um, this is this was a bit of a comeback, really. Like he hadn't been nominated since his win in in like fifty four when he won the Oscar, um, for mm-hmm. Stalag Seventeen. So it's a big gap, um, like a twenty three year gap, and the double lead thing just doesn't happen anymore, which is which is kind of sad. But um, I think it's interesting to have two lead actor performances that are so completely different, and I think they are both lead. Definitely. There's a. Did you sit? Did you notice the many splendid reference? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to mention that earlier. I loved that. I was like, oh, that's cute. Good job, Chayefsky. That's very cute. <laughs> but did he? Did he know that Holden was going to play? Or maybe they just added that afterwards. I don't know. I, I was. I was reading about the casting, but it. Um, it didn't seem like there was too much of uh, discussion about who was going to play. Uh, Max, I know that I think Faye Dunaway was lobbying for Robert Mitchum, okay. but uh, Lumet Lumet uh, turned her down. Um, I think he he didn't think Mitchum could be a New York television executive. He was just a bit too rough, uh, which is probably true. When Peter Finch uh, did win Best Actor, you know, posthumously. Uh, Patty Chayevsky was supposed to accept the award on his behalf, but um, when he got up on the stage, he he uh, basically said, I don't know why I'm doing this when uh, Peter's wife, his widow, is here, and he called her up onto the stage to accept the award, which I think is a pretty, uh, a pretty classy move on his part. Very, very classy, yeah. So we've got a woman to talk about, yeah? <laughs> we do, yeah. Um, the first, the trailblazer, um, and as as I mentioned last time, yeah, we seem we are probably on the verge of uh, another woman winning in this category. So now we're talking about the one who started it all, Lena Lena Wertmüller, for the unbelievable Seven Beauties, which I had not seen before, and my goodness, what a film this is. Well, we're usually very coy when we watch the films and we don't necessarily text each other and reveal what we think. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think we both couldn't help a couple of messages. There was a little exchange (laughs) because you, you, 
the opening of this film is just amazing. Like it's yeah. you've never seen anything like it. I think I mean the only thing that reminded me a little bit of like the end of Doctor Strange Love in terms of how iconic it is. Um mm-hmm. but it sets up the movie so well. You've got this montage of war and nationalism and fascism and there's a series of statements that's like, oh yeah. And um, (laughs) it's just a great way of like announcing the mentality of the movie. And um, I think Vet Muller just has no time for nonsense. And she was like a a self-confessed socialist and feminist. And you can see that in the way that she's made Seven Beauties. That like, as a nomination, it feels, I like The Hurt Locker, don't get me wrong, but it feels like um, this is a nomination for a woman like, going her own way completely you know this is like um it's full of personality it's full of individualism um so it's it's probably one of my favorite nominations ever in the oscars yeah Uh, no absolutely agreed um if of any of the films and any of the director deserve to be the you know the first woman nominated for best director it's this one um the stamp of her filmmaking and her approach and her philosophy is there all the time. Um, And just the approach to this protagonist who's, you know, just in the greatest um, Italian tradition, just an asshole, but made out so lovable that even when he does horrible shit, you, you can't stay mad at him long. Um, I mean, he he has a very Blackadder look going, and maybe that helped me uh, stay on his side. <laughs> um, but yeah, what a what a film and what a protagonist. Um, and Gian, you know, Giannini nominated for best actor for this, absolutely deservedly. Um, God, it is very Blackadder, isn't it? I've just thought it is very, very. It's like old imperialist you know it's like a satire of old imperialism isn't it yeah and just the the perfect mustache and the greased back hair and i've i've always admired in these in period films the men brushing their greased hair back with both hands at the same time and i think i would i don't think i would have the coordination to do that i would just look (laughs) ratty all the time because i wouldn't be able to perfectly smooth down every strand of hair before going out on the town <laughs> but pas yeah pascalino's i mean he's he's a terrible human being in many ways um mm-hmm. like but the, uh, the whole film is sort of like explaining how this regular italian guy who's like all about family and uh honor it can be like the target for nationalist sympathies and the way that nationalism is or fascism is sort of like sort of the idea of it. You know, I think there's a scene where he talks to this socialist about Mussolini and he's got no explanation as to why Mussolini is the right leader, apart from the fact that he looks strong Um and yeah. it just sort of emphasizes the fact that he's completely bought into the propaganda. Um, well, you know, maybe maybe Miss Brody taught him. <laughs> God, 
the vitriol Chris has for Gene Brody. Gene Brody, the character, nothing but praise for Maggie Smith. <laughs> um, but it is interesting that you feel sorry for Pascalino. I kind of, I kind of was like interested in the fact that she didn't give him a love interest. Like, I thought that was good. Um, yeah. You know, you consider like Fellini is probably the biggest Italian director at, at that time, uh, maybe ever. Um, if it was Fellini, you know that this guy would just have women falling at his feet and there'd be dolly birds left, right and centre, you know. You'd have mm-hmm. Anita Ekberg um, sort of posing on the side. And it. I think there's definitely a female influence in this. Like, there, I don't think there's, there is any conventionally attractive woman in the film female character his fiance is pretty conventionally attractive mm, eventually yeah but yeah eventually I, sure mm, yeah but I, I thought there was i don't know i just didn't think there was much sexualization of women like the only mm. there's a scene where i mean there's a lot of reference to his sisters being prostitutes but they're not yeah. really sexualized in, in terms of the gaze. It's all very, it's all quite, you could tell that it's not a man that's directed it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's definite signs there. No, totally. The And the, the whole thing about the prostitution is completely non-sexualized. It's all, you know, fitting into the overall theme of just survival, you know, and... Yeah. It's just kind of, it's a profession. Um, and that's it. Yeah, it's not treated in a sexual way almost at all, except, you know, the, the only way you can tell the prostitutes are the fact that they have garish lipstick. Um, and it's just the mark, you know. It's, and also the film, like, in terms of Vert Muller and the editing, it pretty pretty seamlessly moves from between time frames pre-war during the war post-war pretty effortlessly like you don't really have to say you know think where am i it's all defined within the scenes um so Mm -hmm. it's very well made in that way it was also um one of the earliest films to be set uh inside a inside the concentration camp and really kind of show the brutality of it Although it was criticized by a few Holocaust survivors as being um, as being unrealistic in its portrayal of uh, camp life, it's done a little bit cartoonishly. Um, yeah, mm. but I, I I mean I didn't mind that so much. Um, it's it's interesting, like Vert Muller. You might look back at sort of history and think, oh, this was a this may have been like a surprise nomination. and it, it absolutely wasn't. She got a DGA nomination, um, which is a huge deal. The film got four nominations, including Best Actor. So this was like hugely popular at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and as we mentioned, um, I think on Twitter in the 70s, they, the Academy fell in love with uh, foreign language films so that another point in its favor you know nomination time a hugely popular foreign film and a beloved foreign film you know um you know this is these are the years when people like scorsese start voting 
in the academy and of course he's going to nominate Bergman mm. and Wertmuller. Yeah, and I think we've got like what Truffaut, Fellini um, mm-hmm. at this time, Pontecorvo, it's a bit before. Um, but there are a lot of foreign nominations. Uh, Ed, Mo- Edward Molinari. Um, so, yeah, very yeah. popular time, like especially compared to the 80s. Where you don't really get that many, um, mm-hmm. like three or four. But uh, in terms of like pioneering achievements, this is certainly near the head of the list. And uh, it's just, I think it's just the personality of this film really struck a chord with me. You, you, you won't see a film like it, you know, before or since. And it really stands out. Absolutely. Yeah. I was uh, just blown away by it from start to finish. And when it was over, it's one of those movies where you just kind of sit in stunned silence thinking about what you saw. Okay. Shall we go on to the winner? The winner, yes. uh, Rocky, which um, a few years ago, um, The Hollywood Reporter polled Academy members on past... Oscar upsets or surprise wins and uh, a hundred a few hundred Academy voters when it came to this year they placed Rocky fourth I think in their best picture lineup behind All the President's Men Network and Taxi Driver Um, but this year in 1976 uh, it was a one in a million shot but it made it and it won Picture and director. Yeah, it's well, some things just kind of capture the moment, don't they, some films? Yeah. But this was all all Stallone, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he wrote it and starred in it, yeah. And the studio didn't want him to star in it. They wanted a, a bankable name. Um, mm-hmm. He was a bit of a nobody at this point. Um, but, I mean, you have to admire the fact that he fought for it, you know, and stars in it and the movie was a huge like the biggest movie of the year financially uh, he became a film star and I'd, while he's not the greatest actor in the world I don't think there's anyone trying to defend him as the greatest actor in the world um, the kind of creative influence and the tenacity he shows towards the project I think is commendable definitely and it's a good film no, yeah, it is, absolutely. And I mean, I think that he knew he had a very good script in his hands. And I mean, the studios must have known, too, if they were willing to accede to his demand to star in it. Um, yeah. You know, they obviously saw the potential in it. Um, and it is a good film. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I think it is well written. I think I think Stallone is a good writer. Um I think that he's able to craft this type of film very easily. Um, Although he, you know, looking at the earlier drafts of the film, he definitely made some concessions to make it more Hollywood friendly. Mm. Uh, He still, he still knew what, he still knew what people wanted. He knew that this type of film would be good. And it was pretty much just like, hey, you know, there's a lot of, Boxing's very popular, but there hasn't been a good boxing movie in a while. I'll write a boxing movie, and there you go. 
sometimes it's just that easy. I shouldn't say it was easy. He had a t- he had a tough time, but you know. I think I, I kind of liked most of the writing. Um, there is some shaky plotting. Like, I think the very idea that the heavyweight champion would want to pit himself against a random guy off the street, I find that a bit far fetched. Yeah. And even as like this underdog story, which is what it's pitched as, it's a bit unrealistic. Um, and I don't get why they choose Rocky in the first place. Like, it's not as if he wins an amateur competition. We don't see him fight before the the end, which is kind of a strange decision um, in terms of the script. Yeah, that probably would have made more sense. But yeah, it's like it's uh, Carl Weathers is sitting in his office, like wearing a three piece suit and everything. He looks like he's flipping through a ledger. I don't know what book he was reading. And then he just like right here, the Italian stallion. And why was the Italian Stalin in this book? Yeah. Like, was it just like a list of boxers and their nicknames? Um, Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, I was watching that scene and I was like, this, it's like a scene from Murder, She Wrote or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was very TV-ish. It was very like sort of amateurish. And then you, you know, you, you sort of think, okay, this, when you see it, you know, portrayed like that, you think, okay, this is kind of just a device. Yeah. We're just, you know, for the story. Um, But like, in terms of like, Rocky as a character, I, I liked him. And I, I liked the relationship between him and uh, Adrian. Mm-hmm. Like, I, he's not, you you know, you could get somebody, he's built like a brick shithouse, for God's sake. Like, <laughs> he could take anyone on. Um, but he's very unassuming. Like he doesn't take advantage of his size um, yeah. or his strength. Like he, he's he's a bit self-involved, but only because he's lives and breathes bo- boxing, and he doesn't really know any better. So he's not an arrogant person. So as in terms of a grounded character, I think he's actually quite strong. Yeah, definitely. He he kind of and Stallone plays that kind of gentle giant. Um, almost like kind of Lenny kind of character, I think quite well. Mm. Um, and yeah, you, you get that he's this, you know, this big lovable lug, uh, who's, yeah, just kind of down on his luck and unassuming looking for his big, his big chance. But it, it is kind of weird though. Was it weird to you when he arrives at the docks to shake that guy down and everybody yeah. else on the docks is just like, "Hey, Rocky, how's it going?" You know, not like, "Oh shit, he's here. He's here to beat someone up." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think that just fell in line with the whole thing. He's just not suited to be the bad guy. Um, oh, he's not. No, yeah. And that's what the the the, the script is kind of setting that up all along that he could never be the bad guy, and he has to do right by his woman, yeah, um, yeah. and everything. And, like, I think it's a bit like Adrian is, like, such this dowdy librarian-style character at the beginning. You think, oh, come on. Could she not be, like, a little bit... Does she have to, like, wear her own knitted jumpers and things, you know, like... um, And have these huge glasses. I don't know if they were were huge glasses, but that's the kind of impression I got from the character. Um, Yeah. And and it, it was very, like, it was very cartoonish, but... 
as the relationship goes on, their scenes together, like Stallone's lovely in this. I, I mean, I might not nominate him for Best Actor, but I don't think it's a bad nomination. I think he's yeah. really lovely in the scenes with Talia Shire and the character work is definitely there. But yeah, I think the as a courtship, it works. And in terms of the end, like, isn't that what it's all about? Which is which I found really interesting watching it again, that it's not about who wins. It's as long as you've got love. Mm -hmm. And until uh, you get offered a few million to write a sequel, and then it's about winning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But just at this moment. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a lovely ending. Um, And just the, the whole final sequence, the fight sequence, I think is done. Um, is done really well and I like Carl Weathers' performance especially the moments after Rocky knocks him down you can just see the confusion and anger in Apollo's face I love that moment where he's like oh shit I'm really gonna have to fight this guy (laughs) (laughs) it is kind of like in the perfect um, sort of area for everybody like it's sort of a a film you can't possibly dislike the the men have got their box this is a generalization but the men have got mm-hmm. their box movie the women are like he's a great guy he only cares about the girl <laughs> it's 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 like a it's sort of a perfect storm movie really where you know it becomes all things to all people um and yeah. it's very inoffensive um but i kind of think that the ending subverting the expectations of the ending definitely helped the film win the Oscar yeah because it, it marks it apart you know there's been a lot of boxing movies throughout the years that have got Oscar nominations not that many got best picture nominations um, and this is one of the few that won um, alright any more on Rocky um, oh just to mention that the dog in the movie Butkus is uh, Stallone's dog um and oh. when he was uh before he wrote and sold the rocky script he had to sell his dog for $40 to buy food and pay his rent um and then after he sold the script to rocky he went back to the guy he sold it to and bought him back for $10,000 and wow. i don't know if that i don't know the details if that was just stallone being really generous or the guy just being a huge dick but either way, uh, he got his dog back, and and that's his dog butt kiss in the movie. That's lovely. Yeah. What a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, only three Oscars for Rocky, though. Um, editing, right? Editing as well. Yep. Editing. Yep. Stallone got uh, nominated as a writer and an actor, but lost both to Network. Um, Patty Chayefsky's picking up his third solo writing Oscar, which to this day is a record. Wow. Well, completely deserved um, oh, for absolutely. this film. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, All the President's Men picked up uh, adapted screenplay for another great screenwriter of the age, William Goldman. Yeah. Brilliant. And he's got a wonderful book, Hype and Glory. Um, 
about it's all about the Cannes Film Festival where he was on the jury in 1988 and oh yeah um when they gave it to I think they gave it to Pella the Conqueror um but he's got like he he's wrote this book about the whole process and the other people on the jury and uh Cannes in general and it was a really good book worth checking out mm-hmm. I'll have to check it yeah yeah, Net- Network and all the President's Men had the most Oscars of the evening. They each had four. But, yep, Rocky came away with the top prize. So do you think, um, did Elvidson deserve uh, his Best Director Oscar, and do you think that it was a tight race? I think he won, obviously. I think this is obviously close with Sidney Lumet, right? Yeah, I would think. Because for Network to win four big Oscars, five acting nominations, the actors are on its side. Um, I do feel like it, it was probably came down to Rocky vs. Network uh, in those categories that Rocky won. Um, so I think it was close, probably not massively close, but close enough, yeah. Yeah, I'd say close enough. And yeah, it's it's interesting that the two films uh, in Academy history, this and Streetcar, um, failed to win director or picture. Um, it's amazing to me that they could say, yeah, this has three of the best performances of the year, but yeah, it's not quite the best. So, we have a we have a few listener questions this week. Um, Zeta Short asks, uh, do you think that All the President's Men gets overrated because it is about a, quote, important subject? And would Alan J. Pacula's other films, Clute, Starting Over, etc., be more deserving of the respect that uh, President's Men receives? This is the only Alan J. Pacula film that I would rate above three stars. Um mm. But I've not seen The Parallax View or Rollerball, um, which I think are quite big blind spots. Um, But Sophie's Choice starting over, Comes a Horseman and Clute, all not great uh, in my Mm -hmm. eyes. Um, And about in terms of the first question, yeah, it does help that it's about an important subject um, because that's why it got talked up for awards in the first place. Um, either because it's about an important subject or because um, a big filmmaker is making it. So while I don't think the film is particularly overrated, it's it will be regarded as Pacula's best because, in some part, because it is an important historical touchstone uh, in terms of cinema. So... But that doesn't mean it isn't an amazing film. Yeah. No, I, I agree that it was definitely helped by the timeliness of it. Um, and I have not seen Starting Over. Uh, I have seen Clute. Um, and I don't think that Clute is anywhere near as good as All the President's Men. Um, no. And it, like I said at the top, I think it's just a one of the most perfect political thrillers I've seen. And it, you know, right down to the calendar. So, you know, props. Um, Aon Daly asks, would you have replaced any of the nominees with Scorsese or Ashby, who were the two Best Picture nominees that were not nominated for Best Director? Um, I would replace 
John G. Appleton with Scorsese. I've not <laughs> seen Bound for Glory, um, so I can't comment on Hal Ashby. Yeah, um, same. I haven't seen Bound for Glory, and I would, I would get Scorsese in there and knock out Albertson. Did Albertson do anything else? Like, um, I... did the Karate Kid? Oh, okay. All right. Um, but bad. definitely this. No. Um, and he, I think he did get a another Academy Award nomination for a short documentary in the eighties. Um, but in terms of feature films, uh, this was, uh, this was his last, his only, uh, success at the Academy or at the Globes, I think. He was a three-time Razzie nominee though, so, you know. (laughs) He doesn't care. He's got an Oscar. (laughs) No, nobody cares about the Razzies. Um... (laughs) And finally, Andrew Corden, or sorry, Carden, asks, where does Network rank for you among Lumet's four best pick or best director noms? You answer this one first. Um, I would say it ranks pretty damn high. And these are four <laughs> amazing films. So it's it's choosing, ranking them is tough. Um, I mean, 12 Angry Men, his first nomination is obviously um an absolute classic uh he was nominated the year before this for dog day afternoon another great film and then of course uh his fourth nomination came in 1982 for the verdict and it's like sophie's choice (laughs) it is Uh, he could have won for any of those honestly um 1957 was david lean's year for um Bridge over the River Clyde. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> and my vote would have gone to Lumet easily. Um, 1975, I love One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, but I would have been pretty hard-pressed uh, between Foreman and, and Lumet that year. Uh, this year, Network, again, a, just a crashingly brilliant film. And The Verdict, better than uh, better than Gandhi any day of the week. Not difficult. <laughs> yeah. But in okay, but I'm getting away from the question. Where does network rank? I couldn't say. Um high. Um but I I couldn't say what's number one or number two in that. Those are just I mean, those are four such great films. I mean I'd have to put Twelve Angry Men first because it's probably a perfect movie. Um Yes. And I don't feel like Network is perfect, but so in that way, Twelve Angry Men has to be number one for me, and then it would probably be Network. Network. Um, the other two I've not seen in a long, long time, so I can't really comment on that. But yeah, I mean, if I watched Twelve Angry Men today, maybe I'd immediately agree. But I've just seen Network and been blown away by it anew, so maybe that's why I'm having trouble with it but definitely yeah i I agree that 12 angry men is a perfect film so um in terms of snubs this year um i mentioned when we talked about this last week that this is such a strong lineup that i'm not even particularly mad about any Mm -hmm. potential snubs um but i think we've already talked about probably the biggest one 
Um, Scorsese, obviously, a huge snub, not getting in for Taxi Driver. Yeah. Um, I think it's it it's comparable to what happened, I think, with Spielberg and uh, for Jaws and... Um, to an extent, Christopher Nolan. Um, Scorsese's better than both Spielberg and Nolan for me by eons. But mm. yeah. I'm just thinking that in terms of the sort of filmmakers in similar stages of their career who have been snubbed by the director's branch, it does seem to, you know, you know, you really do need to have to earn your stripes with the director's branch. It usually takes a few films you know, to really earn their respect, especially if you've been talked up as the next big thing or you feel like a threat. Um, I think Damien Chazelle's probably a big exception recently, but it, do, it does feel as if Scorsese lost out because he maybe just didn't have enough respect at that point. He was very early in his career. Um, and when you've got Ingmar Bergman, who's been a legend since the... <laughs> since the late 40s, early 50s going against you and some really big hitters and Seven Beauties, which was really beloved. And Taxi Driver, not an easy film to swallow, as as the can booing uh, might suggest. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, though, you know, uh, Scorsese being such a big film nerd and film scholar, I can't imagine that he was upset by... Bergman and Wert Mueller being nominated. No, he was pro- no. he was probably just excited at the possibility that one of them would win an Oscar to worry about his own lack of a nomination. Yeah, yeah, it's not quite Spielberg. Uh, the video of Spielberg being gutted that Federico Fellini's been nominated ahead of him, <laughs> where he just comes off. Of, it's a little bit brattish. Um but yeah, yeah it. I, I think Scorsese has done fine since, so I don't think he'd be too upset. Yeah. Ashby we haven't seen, we can't, but obviously that must be up there as one of the, the ones that were just left out. He got the globe nom, I think. Mm-hmm. And what about John Schlesinger for Marathon Man also got the globe nomination and that movie got some Oscar nominations? Yeah, uh, William Goldman's other 1976 film. Um, I could see that being on people's minds i mean that's another um very energetically directed film and i think that uh he brings a lot of interesting tricks to it so i could i could see him um being on the top somebody's top 10 as they're making their best director list what about brian de palma i think that would have been a stretch okay yeah, not not because he's not. It's not a good movie that he didn't direct very well, but just because it's not. I I don't think you'd see that kind of film. Um, I mean, I know we just had The Exorcist a couple of years before that, but mm. um, that's definitely an exception with a, a horror film getting that kind of high Oscar nominations. Um, so yeah, I, I think Carrie would have been a a pretty dark horse to get a best director nod. Shall we do wider observations? Sure. It's very spread the wealth. We mentioned this earlier. Um, three very big movies um, sharing half the Oscars between them. 
this is the low I think we did a stat with it. this is like considering Rocky got 10 nominations there's only been one movie that got less wins which was Rebecca uh, back in 1940 mm-hmm. so but does that speak to its competition more than that people weren't mad about Rocky's script or Rocky's um, cinematography or whatever yeah, I think it's just that it was in a it was up against some very very stiff competition and the fact that it rose to the top and won picture and director um is pretty outstanding. And yeah, I, I don't think that it's a slight at all to its other achievements. Um losing to Network and All the President's Men I think is a fine way to lose. Absolutely, yeah. Especially for the screenplays, I think that would have been bad if Rocky had won screenplay. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do have to say I love Stallone's reaction when they announce Peter Finch as the winner. Like, he looks genuinely surprised that somebody can win posthumously. He, like, is looking around like, whoa, was he still in it? I thought I thought he died. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's probably not what he was really thinking, but just his face just looks so like what him? No, <laughs> I d- I do think he could have won. Like if if Finch sure. hadn't died, um, like almost sort of in a Charlton Heston way, or a, a Ernest Borgnine way, sort of um, it's the titular character in the Best Picture winner. Um, but yeah, although I I think if P- if Finch hadn't have died i mean he still might have won even if he hadn't died i don't think he won just because he died but i think second place must have been de niro i don't know he's a he's a he's a bad guy though isn't he but yeah but he had already won he was it was a big deal i guess that's also true yeah Mm. yeah i don't know it's an interesting question that we'll never know but i think Finch's is the best part. I just think it's sort of like what the what the film's about. It's just got a lot going on, um, and it's somebody you can't really hate mm-hmm. as well, which is pretty important. Um, I I would have if I was voting between the two of them, the two lead network actors. I I think I would have voted for Holden, uh, just because I I think he had a more interesting role to play and i like seeing holden in this like later stages of his career playing this kind of character um just kind of the the old guard being left behind and struggling and wondering if he should struggle to stay up to keep up with the new way of uh the new way of life which we you know he kind of did in the wild bunch and this is uh slightly less violent but a similar a similar kind of character and i liked i like that about his later career so um yeah and he got to he got to reference love is a many splendored thing <laughs> uh which is just a like i said just a cute moment yeah i think like at some point i wanted to mention in terms of wider observations we will do documentary for this year um, because I will pick it at some point. Um, probably not too soon because we've just done 1976. Um, 
but it's a really interesting bunch of documentary nominees and they're all available um there's a film about the the blacklist the hollywood blacklist um which i think would be really interesting um so there's there's a lot of other things so we will do it at some point but um because we can't do any of the big categories now because networks hogged all of the categories (laughs) that's true yeah and we've we've yeah, we've pretty much talked about all of the acting categories. I mean, the only one that has too much left to talk about would be supporting actress. Um, but the rest of them, pretty much done. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I've been we've been meaning to do documentary for a while, so it'll, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, shall we? Shall we rank the rank the best director nominees of 1976? Why not? I think we both know what our fifth is. Yeah, since we just said we would bump him off the list. Uh, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, right. So at number five, I've got John G. Avildsen. Serviceable direction, um, but um, mm-hmm. maybe not singular. Uh, number four, I've got Alan J. Pakula. I think it's good direction. Um, I... Maybe in terms of a technical level, there wasn't as much as the top three. It's a great lineup as we talked about, but I have him at four. Three, I've got Bergman, some brilliant shots, a little bit compromised, and um, but amazing work. Two, I've got Lumet, mm. um, just excellent, some great decisions in that. But I, I had to go with Bert Muller at number one because I think. As I said earlier, it's just got, for me, the most personality in, in its filmmaking, and it's like something I haven't seen before. So I've got to go with that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, for the second consecutive episode, we have the exact same ranking. Um, yeah, I've got Alvidson at number f- uh, at number five. Like, Yeah, I agree serviceable certainly better than stallone uh when he takes over the series but um yeah nothing uh nothing to write home about um yeah and then number four i've got pacula number three bergman and i'm wondering how it will affect my ranking when i do see the full version of face to face if that will um if that will make me move him up uh, I doubt it will make me me move him down. I think he can only go up. Um, so I don't know. We'll see when uh, we'll see when I see it. And then yeah, number two, Lumet, and number one, Vert Mueller. I mean, it was it wasn't even hard for me to put her at number one. Such a great film, such a surprising film. Um, it's just one of a kind, you know. One of a kind, yeah, and just the way it, the tonal shifts and the way it deftly handles um, dark comedy and just crushing, um, crushing depression. And these, some of the most sad moments I've seen sometimes in the same scene. She's <laughs> <laughs> so just, a, it's just incredible. Just incredible. What a, what a film. Absolutely. We, we've got a website, categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categorically. Oh, what we got next week? Next week, um, we are going back to one of our 
One of our favorite categories, um, screenplay. We're looking at best original screenplay of 1946. Um, the nominees that year, The Blue Dahlia, or Dahlia, whatever you prefer, by Raymond Chandler, Children of Paradise by Jacques Prévert, Notorious by Ben Hecht, Road to Utopia by Norman Panama and Melvin Frank, and the winner, The Seventh Veil by Muriel Box and Sidney Box. And we will have a guest, won't we? We'll have a guest, Farron Nemeth, uh, the self-styled siren herself, will be joining us um, for this rescheduled episode. Um, and we've got, oh, we've got like married box couple. Is that what's going on? Muriel and Sydney Box. Yep, that is a that is a husband and wife team. Wow. It's like the um the big sick, although maybe not quite so dramatic a story behind <laughs> this one. I guess we're gonna find out. <laughs> <laughs> Let us never part. Bring me all the dreams you thought would never be we'll make them all reality just you and me you take my heart away away Yeah. Hey.